two texts for today's sermon. Luke chapter 2 is my first one, Philippians chapter 4, if you're following along. But Luke chapter 2 says this, and so the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you, not to you, but for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, I'm reading from the message translation on this one. I'm glad in God, far happier than you would ever guess. Happy that you're again showing such strong concern for me. Not that you ever quit praying and thinking about me. You just had no chance to show it. Actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. I don't mean that your help didn't mean a lot to me. It did. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. Today, we launch into our new Christmas series, Joy, not to the world, but for the world. And God knows we need some joy after 2020. Can you say amen? And so I see Christmas as part of God's divine timing this year. It's coming at just the right time because Christmas is a story about good news of great joy for all people. And that's what we need this time of year. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for unleashing your joy in every heart. I pray for it to happen supernaturally, for it to wash over everybody in all circumstances. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. When you think of iconic Christmas characters, there are many that come to mind, aren't they? Rudolph with his nose so bright. Elf, Francisco, that's fun to say. That's my favorite part of Elf. Santa, of course. You better watch out. You better not pal because Santa Claus is coming to town. Frosty, thumpity, thump, thump, thumpity, thump. And of course, Charlie Brown. You can't forget about Charlie Brown, right? Why is the mother in Charlie Brown always like, I don't know, maybe that's a message for the ladies or something like that. Anyway, but to me, the most iconic figure of all is gotta be Scrooge. Matter of fact, if Jesus were teaching about joy, I believe, because, you know, Jesus taught in parables, didn't he? I believe Jesus would have started off with something like this. There once was a, a really rich, really cranky old man named Ebenezer Scrooge, who despite the many blessings in his life, being a successful businessman, being having a giant of a house, a mansion of a house, a big bank account, so he didn't have to worry about his retirement. Despite having all these blessings, this, this really rich old man had no joy. And so today what I want to do is I want to look into the life of Scrooge, and in this series we're going to look at both Scrooge and Grinch, to learn what the recipe is for joy. Because, you know, we need that right now more than anything else. And we need to learn how to be joyful in any and all circumstances. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in one of our opening texts. Again, notice what he says. I found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, 
hands full or hands empty, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Translation, pandemic or no pandemic, I got joy. Food on the table or stomach growling from hunger, I've got joy. Money in my pocket or hole in my pocket, I've got joy. Sickness or health, I've got joy. Everybody together for the holidays or somebody missing for the holidays, I've got joy. Paul didn't say it was easy, but he said he learned to have joy in every and all circumstances. So that, and I quote, he says, I'm far happier than you would ever guess. Here's what he's saying. If you knew my circumstances, this is what he's saying. If you knew what was going on in my life, if you knew my struggles, if you knew my pain, if you knew my loss, if you knew my heartache, you would think I would have no joy, but I'm far happier than you would ever think. That should be our testimony as Christians. Happy, full of joy in every and all circumstances. See, I don't need a cookie recipe at Christmas time. I don't need a fruitcake recipe at Christmas time. I need the recipe for how I can be full of joy in every situation in life. And today we're going to begin to look at some of the ingredients in that recipe. Most of you, you know the story of Scrooge, but let me set up what you're about to see. And this series is kind of like a little at the movies series. And so we're going to go back and forth between some clips, but let me set up what you're about to look at. The ghost of Christmas past takes Ebenezer back to his childhood where he relives both the good memories and more specifically for our purposes, the bad moments in his life. And this is the scene where he was left in boarding school by his dad all by himself for the holidays while all of his other friends got to go home and be with their families. Check this out. The end part of that clip, we see Scrooge remembering his sister Fan, and she died in childbirth just like his mother did. And so a lot of what Scrooge is remembering are the pains of his past the time that he was abandoned by his dad and left there, the time when his mother passed away and his sister passed away. And these were scars that marked Scrooge's heart and caused him to not have the joy that we're talking about. And what was the purpose of the ghost of Christmas past showing Scrooge these scars? Well, it's ingredient number one in our recipe for how do we have outrageous, contagious joy under every circumstance of life. And the first one is real simple, and you might have heard this before, and it's nothing that is going to rock your world, but it's something that we need to be reminded of. The first ingredient, if we're going to have joy, is we've got to be people who forgive. We do ourselves a favor when we forgive others. Why did Scrooge live a bah humbug existence? Well, he refused to forgive the people in his past, in his early life, that had hurt him. He refused to forgive his father for abandoning him as a young boy. He refused to forgive, and we didn't see the scene, but his fiancée, Belle, for leaving him and walking out of him. And he refused to forgive God, who he thought did nothing about the circumstances. Why do we have such a hard time forgiving people who have hurt us? Why do we allow those scars to be carried our entire lives? I think one of the number one reasons is because we think that if we forgive them, we are doing them a favor for hurting us. And the last thing that we want to do is do somebody a favor for hurting us. But as you've heard it said before, 
Harboring unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Unforgiveness is not a favor to the person that hurts you. We do ourselves a favor when we forgive. Do you remember the question that, that Peter, always sticking his foot in his mouth, asked Jesus about forgiveness? It's in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse number 21. The Bible says, then Peter came to Jesus and he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And then he answers his own question. By the way, if you ask God a question, don't answer it. <laughs> Let God answer the question, right? It's like we're going to go to God, ask him a question, and we're like, before God even has a chance to talk. And by the way, this is the reason why a lot of us don't hear God is because we speak before we allow God to speak. And so he answers the question, and he says, up to seven times? Now, you got to understand, this isn't really a sincere question. This is Pete fishing for a compliment. And every time I come to this verse, I'm reminded of the Geico commercial. Have you seen the one with Honest Abe? Anybody see the Geico commercial with Honest Abe? Nobody? Well, here's how it goes. Um, his wife comes out in a dress. And, you know, this is Honest Abe. And what do women do when they put dresses on? They come out and they, they go, does this make me look fat? Now, he's Honest Abe. And so he's conflicted. Do I tell the truth? Do I tell the truth? Or do I just say she looks really nice? And, and being Honest Abe and all, he just goes, he goes like this. He goes, as if to say, well, a little bit. And, you know, she storms off. Well, what, she wasn't asking an honest question. She was fishing for a compliment. And this is what Pete is doing right here. He's not asking an honest question. He, he's actually sticking his chest out when he gives the answer. And he says, up to seven times. You see, he's been around Jesus a lot. And he realizes in being around Jesus, Jesus is really into this forgiveness thing. I mean, if you could look at Jesus' life, you'd be like, man, this, this guy's a forgiver. Where he goes, he's forgiven people. And he saw how Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery. And he's like, man, forgiveness is Jesus' thing. And he saw how he dealt with the woman with the alabaster box. And he's like, forgiveness is Jesus' thing. And so he's trying to impress Jesus, right? And he also knows that the rabbis actually taught back in Bible days that you only had to forgive your brother or sister who sinned against you three times. After the third time, you don't have to forgive him anymore. And that's where we get three strikes and you're out from. Right? And so Peter's kind of like, Jesus is going to be impressed by this. I, Jesus, seven times, you know, the rabbi thing times two, and I'll throw in one extra, Jesus, just to impress you. And he's thinking Jesus is going to like pat him on the back, oh, wow, Pete, man, you are really my disciple because you've been hanging around me and you, you, you know forgiveness is my thing. And seven times, wow, nobody can forgive seven times. And by the way, think about that. It would even be hard to forgive somebody for the same thing seven times, wouldn't it? I mean, think about that. Hard enough to forgive somebody for the I have a problem having to say the same thing over and over and over again. It drives me up a wall. I'm like, how many times? Right? So, like, by the time I get to seven, like, I'm like, I'm like, you know, just trying to save my Christianity at, at three. By the time I get to seven, I'm like, Lord, you need to rescue me from the pit of hell right about now. And so Jesus, he doesn't pat Pete on the back. Remember what he says, verse number 22. He says, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. 490 times. And you know, you get the legalistic people that go, all right, when I get to 490, I can finally knock him. That's not the point, right? The actual point theologically is till the end of time, but that's a story for another day. But what Jesus is saying is, Pete, the essence of forgiveness it's not what you think it is. 
Forgiveness is not about keeping score. It is a lifestyle decision that is or at least should be a defining characteristic of my followers. That's what he's telling Pete. Matter of fact, he says, Pete, let me tell you a little story. And he goes on this little story. And for time's sake, I'll just kind of tell you the story. There was this guy. He owed this king a lot of money, $75 million to $100 million in today's money. And uh, if he had to pay the king back, which he couldn't, he was going to be thrown in jail, lose his family. I mean, possibly even be put to death. His life was going to be ruined. And so he goes to the king and he pleads with the king. He says, can you give me a little bit more time, a little bit more time and I'll pay everything. Meanwhile, he knows he could never pay it back. And the king looks at the guy and he says, don't worry about it. Forgiven. The guy goes, really? Seriously? He says, completely forgiven. You don't have to pay me a dime back. Now, you would think this guy is all hype. You would think this guy is like, man, I just hit the lottery. $75 million to $100 million debt off your back, off your shoulders. And by the way, I'm not going to teach on this, but that's supposed to be the sin debt. The sin debt is supposed to be too big of a debt that you and I could never, ever, ever, ever pay it back. And when we go to our Father through our Savior, Jesus Christ, he goes, forgiven. We should be overjoyed. We should be like, man, this is the greatest thing in the world. I mean, the greatest thing in the world. And no sooner is he leaving the king's palace, comes down the steps, sees this guy who owes him three months' wages. That's a lot of money, three months' wages, right? I mean, you know, PPE and all that, we need that, cover three months, you know, wages. It's a lot of money, three months' wages. And you would think that when he ran into the guy, he'd be like, listen, man, today's your day. You don't owe me no money. But instead, I like to say, he goes Tony Soprano on the guy, beats him up in the street, drags him off to court. Everybody in the small town sees what he's done. They know that the king has forgiven him, and they go and they go back and they tell the king what he did, and the king calls him in. Here's what the king says, verse number 32, you wicked servant, you wicked, notice this word, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours. Because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, here's the question. Why did Jesus tell Pete this story in relation to how many times should I forgive my brother or my sister? Well, here's part of the answer. It's because of what unforgiveness does to you and I. Here's this guy. He's got way too big of a debt. He could never pay it back. In essence, he's hit the lottery. He should be pumped up about it. And instead, he's scrooged. He's mad at the world. Unforgiveness, notice what Jesus said, makes us wicked. Wicked. You know, the kids say, well, used to say, they don't probably say it no more. They probably say it's corny now. They said, that's wicked. That meant that's good. We use the term wicked to mean evil or satanic or demonic. But that's not what the term wicked actually means. The best way for me to describe what the term wicked means is anybody have any wicker furniture? Right? Anybody ever seen wicker furniture? Come on, if you haven't seen wicker furniture, you're not alive. Raise your hand when I ask you a question. Right? Wicker furniture, it's made out of like, you know, reeds and little piece of wood, right? And it's soaked so that it can become pliable and it's twisted into a certain form, either the form of a table or chairs. And then when it dries, it stays twisted. 
That's what the word wicked means. It means that when you and I harbor unforgiveness in our heart, we become twisted in our soul. Our hearts become joyless. Our hearts become knotted. Bitterness is like a cancer on the inside of us. We become like Scrooge. And so here's my question for you. Who do you need to forgive? What family member? What mother? What father? What spouse? What sister? What brother? What employer? What employee? What friend? Who do you need to forgive? Matter of fact, let me press the pause, but let me press on just a little bit further in this and ask you this question. Some of you may need to forgive God. Now, before I get like a text or an email from the theological police, you know, because there are theological police out there who only watch sermons to find out what kind of theological errors you make, and then they send you nasty grams and all that kind of stuff. And so they're going to go, forgive God. God doesn't do anything wrong. How could you forgive God? That's not theologically correct. Okay, thank you, theological police. Forgiving God is not a matter of forgiving God because God has done something wrong, but forgiving God for us as human beings is when we have to come to grips with God having let us down from our perspective. And when we feel like God has let us down, when we feel, when we believe and we feel like the answer didn't come the way we had hoped or the way that we were standing for, whatever the case may be, is something builds up in our hearts. And what happens is, is, is there's a wall between us and God. Not because God sinned, but because from our perspective, he let us down. And, and I understand that we don't always have the answers to the why certain things happen and why certain things do happen. I understand those. I, I wish I had all the answers. I wish when people were baffled by circumstances, they came to me and said, Pastor, can you just tell me why? I wish in every situation that I could say, yeah, this is exactly why. I don't necessarily know all the answers to everything, but can I tell you what I do know? God is too good to be unkind. He's too wise to be confused. When I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. The other thing that I know is this. I know that in order for me, and this is something that God taught me a long time ago, when I don't understand, and there have been moments in my life, if I'm being really transparent with you, that I don't understand everything all the time. But in those moments, God told me this. He said, aim your anger at the right person. That's a good word right there. Who's that right person? It's not the God who left heaven and came to earth for me. It's not the God who laid aside his divinity and took on my humanity. It's not the God who took 39 stripes on his back for me. It's not the God who was forsaken by the Father for me. That's not who I aim my anger out at. I aim my anger at the one from whom all wickedness comes. That's the enemy of our soul. And so when I don't understand, here's what's helped me. I say, you know what, God, I don't get it and I don't understand it, but here's what I'm going to do. If I'm going to be frustrated at somebody, I'm going to take all my anger out on the enemy. And you can always tell, by the way, when I'm confused because you'll notice there's a special anointing that comes upon me because I get fierce about what the enemy's going to get when something comes into my life that I just don't understand because I've determined long ago that the enemy will not win because his job, what he seeks to do in our lives is to turn us against the God who paid the price for us. 
That's his ultimate goal. That was his trick in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and it's his trick today. So I ask you again, what do you need to forgive? Don't let your heart be twisted, because that's one of the ingredients to unspeakable joy. But number two, if we are going to have this outrageous, contagious joy, we need to do good to those who it is in our power to do good for. The ghost of Christmas present took Scrooge to the home of one of his faithful employees, Bob Cratchit, and you might remember the scene where Scrooge learned about Tiny Tim who would die if he didn't get the medical attention that he needed. And when Scrooge saw the suffering of the Cratchit family and the fate of Tiny Tim, if they weren't able to afford the medical attention that they needed, Scrooge realized something that we all all need to realize if we're going to have outrageous, contagious joy, and it's found in Proverbs 3. Listen to what it says, or look at what it says. It says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, listen to this, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. There's a story in the Bible that very much mirrors Scrooge and Tiny Tim. Matter of fact, I would say it's pretty identical in many ways. It's the story of David and a lame boy, interestingly enough, named Mephibosheth. And the lame boy named Mephibosheth was the son of one of David's best friends, Jonathan. And when Jonathan went on to heaven, David became a second father to Mephibosheth, and he sought to do good for Mephibosheth. And he learned several things, or he teaches us several things about when we do good to other people, when it's in our power to do good. Number one, when we do good to others, we are honoring the good that Christ has done for us. I mean, why did David decide to search for someone from Jonathan's house to do good for? Well, it's because Jonathan was the heir to his father's throne, Saul. And he willfully gave up his right to be the heir so that David could become king. In the story, Jonathan is a type of Jesus and David is a type of us. Jesus gave up everything that was willfully his so that you and I could become everything that Jesus and that God desires us to be. Jesus gave up his rights, his honor, his dignity, everything that was due him when he came to this earth and became one of us so that you and I could become everything that God is destined for us to be. And because Jesus did this for us, we need to be on the lookout for tiny Tims and for Mephibosheths. And every time we show people that kind of goodness, we are honoring the goodness that Christ has shown to us. But then number two, when we do good to others, we realize that we are blessed. And we've been saying it a little bit lately. We are blessed to be a blessing. Scrooge was joyless when he lived his life thinking that the reason why he was blessed was for himself. The reason why he was blessed is so that he could have a big house. And the reason why he was blessed is so that he never had to worry about his retirement. And the reason why he was blessed is so that he can count his money. And the reason why he was blessed is so he could have his own business and order other people around. And because he looked at his blessings from this vantage point, he was miserable. But when Scrooge decided to turn over a new leaf, when he decided that he was blessed to be a blessing, 
the bitterness in his life left, the anger in his life left, the heartache in his life left, and a joy and a peace began to fill his soul. David, on the other hand, as soon as he became king, the first thing that he did, he said, go find somebody from the house of Jonathan that I might show him the goodness of God. He went on a goodness hunt. David realized that he was blessed to be a blessing in church. This should be us. Should be Christians. I know not everybody has the same amount, and I know not everybody can be as generous as everybody else, but we can all realize that any good thing that God has given us in any capacity, God intends for us to use it to be a blessing to other people. Number three, when we do good to others, we help them overcome their hurts, and that makes us more like Christ. I love the way the story of Scrooge ends. Tiny Tim lived and did not die, and Scrooge became like a second father to him. Who knows what have happened? What would have happened to Mephibosheth had David never called for him? Mephibosheth could have very well ended up dead because he lived in a wasteland, the Bible says. But because David showed him goodness, Mephibosheth enjoyed the rest of his life. Matter of fact, listen to how the story ends. I love the way the story ends. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse number 13 says, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And then it kind of adds this little line that, that bothers me a little bit. And he was crippled in both feet. And like when you read Bible stories, is that the way you want Bible stories to end? Like I don't want them to, and he was crippled in both feet. I want it to end like blind Bartimaeus. And his eyes were open that he saw. I want it to end like the, the lame man, I call him Matt, carried by his four friends on the mat. Amen. And he got up and he, and he walked. I want Bible stories to end that way. I want Bible stories to end with the, the storm is calmed. I mean, that's a Bible story. This Bible story right here, it says, because he always ate at the king's table. And I, I wish it would just ended right there. And it goes, and he was crippled at both feet. And you might say, Pastor, it's not a happy ending. A happy ending would have been healed and walked. But you don't get it. His crippled feet are tied to him always eating at the king's table. And guess what happens when you sit at a table and you pull your chair in? Your crippled feet... Your legs, they are completely covered. What's the message? The message is that the very thing that defined him was no longer what was the central focus of his life because David reached out to him. Friend, the good that David did for Mephibosheth helped him to overcome his hurt, helped him to not be defined by a handicap, not be defined by a problem, but rather to have dignity back in his life and rather to help him to have Hope, whose hope is in your hands? Who can you do good to? That's in your power to do good, to give them hope. Maybe they lost it and they need something that God has entrusted to you to be a blessing in their life. You know what I really love about the story? This, this ending kind of puts it really all in perspective. Because it tells us what the ultimate goal of life is. The ultimate goal of life is not to be healed. Although I love healing. 
but I believe it's the will of God. Right? The ultimate goal of life is, is not to have stuff. Oh, I kind of like stuff. You know, God didn't have no problem with it. But that's not the ultimate goal of life. The ultimate goal of life is to make it to the king's table for all of eternity. That is the ultimate goal of life. And God shows us that it cost Mephibosheth. Crippled in both feet. But he sat at the king's table forever. Amen. Lastly, when we do good to others, it benefits us. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 11 says. It says, the merciful man doeth good to his own soul. Here's the question. Who benefited more from the goodness that Scrooge showed Bob Crackett? Cratchit? Crackett? What's his name? Huh? Say it loud. Cratchit. I got it right first. That reminds me of a story, but I can't tell you because it's one of them high school stories who wouldn't edify the Lord. Anyway, who benefited more from the goodness? Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim or Scrooge? Who benefited more, David or Mephibosheth? When you and I do good to other people, when it's in the power of our hand to do good, something happens to our soul, something that money can't buy, something that influence can't buy, something that power can't be buy. Our soul is refreshed. Our soul is nourished. Our soul begins to grow. We become more Christ-like and less bah humbug. But then I want to share one other thing with you. Number three, third ingredient. We'll share some more next week. Third ingredient in our recipe for outrageous, contagious joy. Live with eternity in mind. This is ultimately what changed Scrooge. And I want to show you this clip where he comes face to face with his mortality. Check this. By the way, did your mother ever tell you don't be caught dead in something? What's up with the nightgown as a dude, man? <laughs> Caught dead in that. I mean, almost died in one. Anyway, we see in the clip that Scrooge is forever changed when he woke up to one sobering thought, that he was mortal and that someday he would die. And that's what caused him to decide to live a life that was different, a life lived in light of eternity. This is the kind of life that God has called us to live David spoke about it in Psalm 39. He said, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. What's that mean? For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and made him our personal Lord and Savior, it means beginning to live a life for him with our whole heart. It means beginning to practice Christianity outside of the hour and 15 minutes on Sunday. It means for it to become a real, genuine part of our life where we truly live out what we say we believe. It means to trade our Santa Claus version of Christianity for our pick up our cross and follow him version of Christianity. Where God is not just the big dude in the sky that gives me stuff and 
helps me when I'm hurting because that's just one step above the joyless existence that Scrooge lived. The kind of Christianity that God wants us to live is the kind that Jesus spoke about. He said this in Mark chapter 10, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, whoever gives a cup of water to one of these little ones, even in the name of a disciple, he will in no wise lose his reward. And I love the fact that Jesus said you won't lose your reward because he puts it in perspective. And what he tells us by attaching works to reward is that our here does affect our there. So many times we think that, you know, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we get to go to heaven and that's all that matters. And that is true that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that's what gets us into heaven. But the life that we live, our here, does affect are there. So Jesus is saying, for those of us that already love him as Lord and Savior, begin to live your life in agreement, in accordance with what my word says. Walk it out. Give them your whole heart. But there's another group of people. Maybe there's somebody like this here. There probably is somebody like that out there where you have never, ever considered your mortality. You never seriously considered that we are all but a breath. Here one day and gone the next. And God is speaking to you and is reminding you of the words of that angel to those shepherds. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy which shall be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. What's that mean? It means that when we leave this earth, listen to me, folks, there really is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And there really is a Savior that is needed to pull us from the hell that we are all destined to go without him to the heaven that was created for us. In order for you and I to push past or live beyond this grave in a place called heaven, we need a Savior named Jesus Christ. He's the only way that we can enter the heaven God planned for us and avoid the hell that was never intended for us. The only way is to accept the Savior that died for us. Would you join me in prayer? If you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus, if you're one of those people who have never considered your mortality and never asked Christ to be your personal Savior, never knowingly acknowledged him as the greatest Christmas gift of all, unto us a Savior is born, unto us a Son is given. If you don't know what would happen to you this moment, this second, if you were to die where you'd spend eternity today, God comes to you. He speaks to your heart. He knocks on the door of it. He says, let me in. I want to save you from your sins. I don't want you to leave this earth without knowing me because I want to spend eternity with you. If you're here today and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you need to surrender your life to Jesus today. If you're watching out there today and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you need to. Surrender your life to Jesus today with every head bowed, every eye closed. 
If there's anybody in the room that's like that, you say, Pastor, I need to get right with God. I need to be forgiven of my sins. Right where you are, just slip your hand up, and I'm going to pray for you. If you're out there in the virtual world, then that's you. I want you to just open your heart right now, and I want to lead you in a prayer along with anybody that might be here that needs to make that decision. Say this out loud with me. Heavenly Father, go ahead and pray it at home. Heavenly Father, today I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said...